All right, guys, welcome to the third episode of the Avocado Toast podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Hoffman. And uh, tonight I have a special guest with me, a good friend of mine, uh, Andy Cupy. Say hello, Andy. Hello, everybody. And uh, so, yeah, so this is the night after the State of the Union address. Uh, so that's really kind of what we're going to be hitting on, uh, the different topics, different things that, you know, Trump hit on, the Democratic response, and, and essentially just kind of how we each other feels about it. So, um, you know, to kind of kick this off, uh, what did you think about it overall uh, after listening to it, Andy? Well, I thought it was pretty good. Uh, the first 20 minutes or so started out really well. Uh, we stayed on topic, really uh, hit hard some of the successful things that have been accomplished over the first two years, some bipartisan things that have been accomplished, such as the prison reform, things like that. And then uh, it kind of went back to his normal speeches where he kind of dabbles into his own agenda and starts to kind of exaggerate some numbers and, and you know, push past and then a little bit of fear mongering for his beloved wall, of course. Yeah, there is definitely your, your typical Trump aggrandizement, you know, big claims and overinflated numbers. But the, the fact of the matter is uh, the, the State of the Union, he said, was strong. That's how he described it. That's how he described it in 2018 as well, last year. And, uh, you know, I think it'd be hard-pressed to kind of argue that right now things, uh, they're not perfect, but they're not terrible. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, starting right from the get-go, that I thought was kind of funny is uh, uh, it almost felt like he was, you know, stuck in 1960s or something. Because, I mean, I think the first thing that he started talking about was uh, uh, putting men back in space or, or yeah. you know, men back on the, on the moon. or Like, uh, I, I just kind of thought that was a, a really funny way to, you know, segment into the State of the Union. It was kind of strange. I felt that it was... Uh it was out there. It was almost like a nostalgic grab from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and then later he went into war. Yeah. He started talking uh -huh. about World War II and going way back. And uh, that's a little bit off topic. But it was kind of interesting that he started out and kind of appealed to some of that you think space it, stuff. I, I almost kind of wonder if, you know, that that's obviously an intentional desire to make people think of America when it was uh, leading industries and doing things that no other country could say they were doing and kind of harkening Absolutely. back to that time where uh, America really was a, a leader in, in almost all things. So, you know, know, it's easy to look back at that for sure, you know, toot our own horn and say, hey, these were the golden ages of America. Right. We want to make America great again. Right. Kind of come back full, full circle. So, uh, okay, so he kind of got into it and some of the things that I think uh, – some of the key notes that he hit that uh, I do agree with, and I think that uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone on either aisle uh, really think it's a bad thing, criminal justice reform. Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah. Everybody was happy about that. You saw a both sides stand during that, clap enthusiastically. You had two people who he had brought to the State of the Union who had been in jail and incarcerated for years. Yeah, years for nonviolent offenses, and you know that is definitely something that is a, 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 a huge glare into our criminal justice system and how it's flawed and it's racist. I mean, it really is. You look sure. at the numbers of, of, of minorities and people who are you know sent away for years like these, and there were two African American people. Uh, they were sent away for years, and I think the woman was uh, twenty two years. Yeah, and then you have you know. People who, you know, have gotten a slap on the wrist for having some marijuana on them who are, who are probably look more like you and I. So uh, that's yeah. crazy to me that anyone would spend 22 years for any kind of non-violent offense. And, and then the fact that they can also get their voting rights back, I think that's an awesome thing as well. Absolutely. I mean, anytime you can bring people who've, uh, you know, made a mistake, put a blip, you know, non-violent offenders, give them an opportunity to come back, you know, that's a feel-good story. Yeah. People want to be able to be redeemed and be able to come back from a felony and kind of write their lives. And, uh, you know, I'm seeing here the one guy 35 years for selling drugs. Yeah. Pretty incredible amount of time. And, you know, here, man, I watch, I'm kind of old. I watch Forensic Falls sometimes. And I, <laughs> there's people who go to prison, you know, for seven years for uh, a homicide, you know, for murder, first degree murder. And you're like, oh, they did seven or eight years, got out early on parole. And I'm like, 
kidding me? Violent people, and then you got people selling drugs. The one thing I see, though, is that states like California and a few other progressive ones have already decriminalized a lot of these offenses. So, you know, it's, it's always going to be up to the states, and a lot of people kind of like the state's idea of being able to kind of mess with those kinds of laws and the ways they go about that. But it's good to see it federally across the board because that's really what matters, the penitentiaries and the people who are going in there for a nonviolent offense, the tax dollars to keep people in there. Right, right. We can reform them, make them a good citizen, and bring them back out and contribute. Everybody can get on board with that. So I'm usually, I almost exclusively, I'll delegate anything that can be delegated to the states. I like to see that delegated to the states. Yeah. This is one thing that I feel like the federal government can really shine a, a, a good example on. And that is, you know, I mean, the fact that people are losing their entire livelihoods and entire lives over plants, over, you know, just things that, again, nonviolent offenses, um, you know, I think that's been a great, great uh, travesty to our justice system for a while now. I'm glad to see that that's being tackled uh, and it's being tackled by Trump. You know, you got to give it to him. So that's something that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That is definitely something that Trump has accomplished. And uh, we can't take that away. Right. From the matter of what side of the aisle they're on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, moving forward, he made some some pretty big claims. He said that the economy has never been as booming as it is now. And uh, I believe the total growth right now, they said, uh, this past quarter was, I think, 4.2%, which Obama reached four, four times in his presidency. Yeah. And uh, so... Uh, not that this that's bad growth. We're obviously experiencing some good growth, but uh, <laughs> true to Trump form, he seemed to have thinks that uh, that he's uh, the leader in, in growth right now, which is, I don't think, fair to say. Yeah, you know, it's the same story every time with a lot of the claims he makes. And, you know, you want to make it sound exciting, so inflate the numbers. 4.35 million. Well, 5 million sounds better. Yeah. You know, nice round numbers. And you want to be able to show, hey, I've had some success, and this is why you need to follow me and believe in me, because these are the things I've done. Um, the numbers, I looked at the fact checks through you know, a bunch of different sources, New York Times, a bunch of different ones. And they're all largely, you know, a lot of the things he said, they had a lot of truth to them. A little inflated, but uh, like you said, definitely when it comes to job growth and things like that, he overinflated. He always says it's the greatest it's ever been. Right, we right. know this. He's so quotable. He has the same quote time after time. You know, we saw that little drinking game where if he says, you know, something crazy like it's the best it's ever been, and I'm the one making it happen. Oh. You know. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't drink that night. Um, <laughs> well, you know, so some of the things that he, you know, kind of let's harken back to 2017 with the uh, job. Uh, Job and Jobs and Tax Act, um, yeah, the, job, the the Trump Tax Act, where you know he's attributed these tax cuts to a lot of the reason why the economy has flourished. And I've actually seen a lot of mixed uh, reports. Like it's kind of hard to actually get an idea of, of what's what's truthful and what's not because there's been a lot of mixed reports. Uh, some are saying that yes, the economy is growing, wages are going up, but then. Others are saying that the it's really not any different from what they were doing. They're just kind of buying back into their shares. and, and that's Yeah, really stock sound. buybacks. That's what we've really been seeing. I'm indifferent. I, I lean a little more towards uh, I thought it was kind of a bad tax cut for middle class. It, it, definitely for the corporations, an indefinite cut from 35 to 21%. The 2025, all of ours expires. So... Uh, I feel like that's a little reckless. We're serious about infrastructure and a lot of these things that he talked about last night. He didn't provide any clear path to this. Right. He wants to talk about, well, let's let's address pre-existing medical conditions. Well, that's what Obamacare, Affordable Health Care Act, you know, attempted to do. And he wanted to repeal that, but with nothing. They didn't bring anything tangible to the table to get passed across. And he talks about, you know, fixing uh, the infrastructure. Yeah. Where's that money going to come from? Where did it come from? If you look back to the 50s and the 30s and those era, and that era, and you see that came from taxes on the rich. Yeah. There were higher taxes. We could get money from the bigger nucleus and bring it over, and we could build roads and railroads, and we could build an infrastructure that badly needs help. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. You know, um, it's <laughs> it's impossible to cut taxes and then not cut spending and not expect the deficit to increase. And that's kind of what we're seeing. I mean, the, yeah. the government just borrowed, what, another $1 trillion to cover the deficit. It's growing I mean, that, that's, that's insane, you know, and that's because you, you have to not only lower, um, you know, the input, you know, the taxes, but you also have to lower your output, which is the expenditures. And the government right now is just, it's its not balanced. It's not doing that. So no. uh, that's, a, that's a remedy for disaster. I don't care who you are. You've got to balance tax cuts with also spending cuts. I mean, that's just the bottom line. So, um, and that does kind of bring up another point, you know, so you have people like Elizabeth Warren and, and, and AOC who have proposed uh, the Green New Deals and, and a 70% tax on people who, after they make $10 million, you know, things like that. So that's in stark contrast, to obviously, what the Trump administration is trying to do. Uh, where, where do you kind of fall on that? Do you, do you think that a higher tax rate for people making, you know, eight figures is appropriate or... Well, you know, I actually come from a few different economic backgrounds now. I came being raised pretty poor and then, you know, acquired some money. I'm doing okay now, you know, and I kind of see that I have some excess money now that I can donate and I can make contributions. I don't see any reason somebody, if I'm doing okay and I'm not making a substantial, I'm not in the top tax bracket here. Uh, I, am, I see no reason why somebody who has an excessive amount of money shouldn't pay more taxes. If that can generate revenue... For things like infrastructure, fixing the healthcare system, you know, bringing money in from the biggest thing, and, you know, it's like an investment. You know, yeah. you have a big nest egg. You're going to make more money on it when the volatility of the economy and the stocks go up. You're going to make a lot more than the guy who has barely anything in there. Yeah. So I think that people who are have a ton of money, an excessive amount, they should be taxed at a higher rate, higher rate than somebody who's making half a million dollars. So ten million, for instance, yeah. yeah, they could go to a fifty percent. Obviously, if you find that unfair, they say capitalism. Well, I earned that money and I did that things. Well, we've got to make some money from taxes somewhere, and we know the middle class is the largest tax bracket out there, right? And just cutting one or two percent off of us and expecting us to spend a ton more money is—I think it's—it's far-fetched idea. Yeah, this one I find myself really torn on because I'm inherently against the idea of taxation and higher taxes. But I understand um, that when you make that much money, I mean, think about it. You know, if you're making $2 million in Memphis, Tennessee, how much of that income are you actually repurposing into the economy? Exactly. Uh, not a lot. Like, I mean, honestly, you could live like a king in Memphis, Tennessee. A quarter sure. million dollars a year, you're living like a king in Memphis, yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, you're doing well. So... Uh, you know, if you're making $2 million a year and you're only having to really spend a quarter million of that, you know, the thing that makes rich people even richer is they're able to then take all the rest of that chunk of change and reinvest it and, and increase their wealth, which is fine. But that's not actually trickling down into the economy. That's not actually uh, showing up in consumerism. So, you know, you can sit there and say that rich people create jobs, which might be true to an extent, but... I mean, Jeff Bezos didn't become a, a multi-multi-multi-billionaire because of just himself. No. So, I mean, it takes a lot of people who are all on page with a, a vision. So, I don't know. Part of me says, you know, no, that's not right. But then part of me says, you know, what, what's what's 50% after $2 million, let's say? Like, what what is that little extra bit of money to these people who already have that much? So, uh, I, I would be interested to see arguments for and against. However... My biggest thing is this, is that if you are going to tax a higher tax bracket, there has to be some level of commitment or transparency as to what those taxes are going to. I, that's my biggest problem, is that you know they could raise the taxes on everyone, but we have zero guarantees as to what's going to happen with those taxes. You know, Are we going to get better infrastructure? Is this going to go towards you know, things that we benefit from, we the people, and Right now, that lack of transparency in government is why I have such a hard time trusting it with more taxes. Well, I think that ties right into the wall right now. Yeah. Some people are wondering, is that a, way, a reckless way to spend tax dollars? Yeah. We want to see the numbers. Go through the actual steps. See if this is a feasible situation. Will the money actually reap the benefits, or is it better spent another way? And I think that's the Democrats' argument. 
Yeah. Even though they're spinning it another way, and I'm like, no, they're just totally against Trump. I really think just any piece of legislation has to go through the proper inspection. The problem with the government, and I work for the government actually, <laughs> is that it's bureaucracy, it's a lot of paperwork, and there's a lot of checks and balances in place to keep you from being efficient. Being efficient, exactly. Being able to pass new laws. So an executive order is the easiest way yeah. to get something in there. And I think that's probably what's going to happen here if uh, in, what, seven days or so, they don't come to an agreement. We're probably going to see an executive order to, uh, to declare a crisis there. Well, well, I was really surprised that in the State of the Union, he didn't talk about a crisis. He didn't talk about a state of emergency. He he. Well, he actually talked about a humanitarian crisis. He said there was a crisis at the border. He did say that, but he, he shied away from actually saying that he was going to declare a state of emergency over this border wall, which we know will happen. It will. Yeah. If, if the Dems don't play ball, if there's not some kind of agreement, that's going to happen. Yes. But, you know, there's conflicting reports on that. So, you know, there's people who, who the Trump administration and, and those who are for this wall are trying to throw out all these crazy numbers of the money that's going to save the U.S. because of uh, you know stopping illegal immigration, stopping drugs, stopping violence, you know things that that our, our government has to end up cleaning up. And the the opposition, I just don't see enough facts corroborating those claims. Yeah, I don't believe. think there's any data to support those claims. Yeah, I, I mean, guess. it's really coming out and just saying. A very elementary thing. Oh, if you build a wall, crime, and he said it specifically in there, crime will end. Right. The right. gangs will end. And we all know that's not true. Yeah. We can't do that here in America. We can't stop the killings happening in Memphis because we do some specific thing. We put them all in jail. No, there's still going to be people on the outside. There's still going to be people getting in. There's still going to be people disrupting the system. Uh, it's not the end all be all. He acts like this is some kind of that's it. And there was a wall. Like God, and there was a wall, and crime ended. No, I mean that's that's a totally illogical argument, and I think that's what when I I watched the State of the Union last night, that's the hardest thing for me to kind of try to digest those kinds of blanket statements that don't hold any water. Right. You can't say a wall is going to end all these things. I think it, it will curb it. I actually I've come around to thinking maybe a wall could help in some of the areas. But the statistics from port to entry are so significant for drugs, human trafficking, all these things that are coming through there that that's where we need to reinforce in the yeah. port to entry. There's a lot of people getting through there, and I, I don't think that's the narrative that's been on display enough. Well, I think my biggest thing is that you know he's asking for 5.7 million for this wall, which let's be real, it is a drop in the bucket for the overall. It's not a lot. You're right. Budget, but that's the problem is that. There's no way this is ever going to need just five point seven billion. No, it'll be a continuous maintenance. Once, this is a this yeah, is government. You got to right. pay maintenance. Right. You got to have inspection. And once, but once he stuff. gets that five that initial investment, and things starts going up, then he knows that there's no turning back. So I think that's kind of like why it's a it's a zero sum game. You know, uh, I think intelligent people will sit there and be like, you know, there's no way that this only is going to cost us five point seven billion dollars. But once those you know, beams start going up once the construction starts going up. There's no way we're turning back from that. So uh, I, I don't I agree. I don't have anything. Uh, really, I, I, I'm not aggressively against the wall, but I just don't. I don't see where the facts they're trying to claim uh, justify it. I just don't see where those actually exist, and that's kind of my problem with it. Well, and I think that's why the Dems are, or Democrats are on the other side of this. They say, hey, you know what? I saw that really good quote, and I think it was from Dan Rather. Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, you know what? You can have your wall. You can do it the same way Obamacare and other things came to the table. You can put it out there. People can say, I don't like it. Then you can you know, adjust it. You can amend it. And you can get it to a point where it has bipartisan um, agreement on it. And then you can move it forward. To come out and just say, this is the wall I want. There's, no, there's unfounded data. And just you giving your opinion on it, right. not a factual account. Nobody's going to agree with that. And that's not just for being the president. That's just in business in general, I think. Nobody's going to come out and say, Stephen, I'm going to give you $5 billion to go build a wall over here because I think it's going to increase 
the amount of profit you're going to make from growing soybeans. Right, but you have, no, I mean, come on. You have nothing that bad. So that's another thing. So that came actually, <coughs> this is uh, from an earlier uh, report where the head of the subcommittee is a Republican from Montana. I forget his name off the top of my head. But he said originally Trump asked for $1.6 billion. They provided yeah. a report. They approved it. The subcommittee approved it. But then eventually Trump upped it to $5 billion and then eventually $5.7 billion. And when the subcommittee asked for them to itemize the differences in these budgets and why he needs that extra $4 billion, uh, they just sent back another copy of the $1.6 million. I, I, I read the same thing, yeah. and I don't know the timeline of events, but a lot of uh, left-sided media has kind of tried to say once he lost the House is when it went from 1.6 to 5.6 or whatever it was. Right. Uh, I can't be sure on that, but yeah, if it was already approved and that was actually the reaction to it, and he increased it because of the house or because of whatever, and they didn't want to give a factual reason why they need the extra money, nobody's going to approve that. No. In regular business or wherever you're at, you're going to ask investors to give you five billion on just your opinion. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work out I mean, in any corporation. So if you want to run it like a business, you're still going to have to convince people of what your investment is going to really reap to people. Well, I agree that, that you know, when Trump said that he, and, and I don't think he meant this, but I agree with it, what he said, not probably what he actually means, but when he said that, he just wants to, he is fine with all these people coming in, he's fine with immigration, he's just not, it just has to be legally. I mean, I don't, no one on either side is, is refuting that, right? Like No, no one, not at all. No, I don't even think Democrats are sitting there saying, man, we need all these legal immigrants and, you know, they should be fine. I just, you know, again, it's, it's really just trying to figure out how do we really get to the root of the problem, which is how do we try to make people not want to come here legally? And I think it actually stems more towards how do we make the legalization process easier, friendlier, and, and, and more attractive so people want to do it the right way. I think that's actually going to cause more... Um, you know, help to that problem than a, a wall. Or see, I don't have any personal experience with how long the uh, legalization to become a U.S. Uh, citizen takes. Seven years. Some people say seven. Some people say ten. It could be as long as twelve. Seven years is a long time. Yeah. Long um, time. I don't know if that number needs to be adjusted, but it, what the thing I took away last night is he comes up and he talks about that. But it's like a tick and tack kind of thing. It'll come up and he'll bring up the idea, but we need immigration reform and everybody can get on board with that. And then he'll go, oh, but and a wall is going to contribute to that. Right. And it's like, it's not, it's like apples to oranges. It's not, no, those don't fit together. Um, to me, I find, I find the wall and the way it's been presented and the way that he continues to talk about it, a little bit of fear mongering, you know, trying to using almost like a threat. To the American people, like, this is a crisis, and this is going to affect you when you go to bed tonight, Stephen. And to, for, instill fear is a is a dangerous, that's a dangerous way to try to control the narrative. You know, and it's kind of scary, and I think a lot of people have looked at that and said, oh, scare tactics are not the way to get people on your side. But, you know, both sides have done that. Democrats do the same thing. But sure. you know, for me, and I kind of have a different idea and view on that, and that is that Trump is looking for his crowning achievement. Trump wants something. It's egotistical, yeah, man. Trump wants something That's what this is. that is going to be there long after he is gone. And if he gets his wall built, you know, 100 Trump years wall. from now, that's still Trump's wall. Oh, he'll put his name so, on it uh, eventually, I'm sure. I, I, I compare it to his buildings. Yeah. He has Trump Tower in Chicago. He has Trump Tower in New York. Now he's going to have a Trump wall along the border. You know, it's egotistical. I mean, we can all tell that Donald Trump, our president, is the most sensitive person out there. Every little thing he responds to on Twitter, whether you're going to Twitter or reading or not, the media will usually cover it for you. He responds to everything. And I'll tell you, as the president of the United States, that's just petty. Yeah. You should be looking way past that. You are the leader, the most powerful man in the world. You should not be wasting your time with calling people nasty chuck. And, and bullying people or attacking Saturday Night Live. Come on, man. I mean, you're yeah. better than that. You so, have to be better than that. So, and you know, that kind of harkens back to last night. I think, in all honesty, with as far as Trump goes, this was 
<clears throat> one of his better moments. Like I think I think so. I think he was, you know, for the most part, relatively composed. Uh, you know, he stayed on topic. You know, he did stray away. But I mean, as far as Trumpism goes, this guy, you know, I think he he tried to uh, put out a message that people could get behind, and it had like a seventy four percent approval rating. So. Yeah, on both sides, I saw that, and that was great to see. You know, um, people were very happy with that. He said some tangible things, he but then some, he also went into yeah. some weird things. And I, I, did you see that where they compared uh, him to Nixon, bringing up Nixon right, brought right, up Watergate? Right, right. So what was that quote? What was that quote? Quote is you know it's people are calling it Doctor Seussisms, right, right? And you know, he, you know the whole thing. I'm not going to read it all. The second line of it though, if there's going to be peace in legislation. There cannot be war and investigation. There it is. There it and is. that fell on really quiet audience. It was almost like a groan during this uh, yeah. State of the Union. I don't uh, think anyone would react to that. And no. he actually ended it with like the Dr. Seuss rhyme, like uh, it was like a cliffhanger. And that's ex that's exactly what Nixon did. Yeah. So that's yeah. Kinda, that is kind of a good point. Um, he's clearly his, his attempt, his intentions behind that was really simple. Look. I think he tried to lay out things that he could be bipartisan on, and he said, focus on that. Don't focus on investigating me. But, I mean, that just kind of screams, you know. <laughs> uh, something is going right, on. Right, you don't right, need right, to right. talk about that. You can, if, really, the way to change any subject, if you're going to lie, is to just change the subject completely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, don't so, revisit it. So one of the things, obviously, the wall was a huge um, uh, point of contention uh, with yes. the Democrats. Another thing he kind of harped on there was uh, late-term abortions. And that's something oh, we've been seeing. Ugh. That's something we've been seeing a lot here in. in that's the right here, yeah. And uh, you know, I, that's something that uh, I personally, I, I'm personally, I, so how I describe this, I'm personally pro-life, I'm politically pro-choice, and what that means is that me personally would always opt for the life over abortion uh, if I had to say so. If I, it was my call, then that's the way I'm going every time. Sure. I think it's a, a life. I think they should give a chance, put them up for adoption, whatever. But I understand the autonomy behind it being a woman's body and her also trying to, uh, you know, being able to choose what to do with her body. However, I do really kind of have issues with these late-term abortions. And they try to say that it's only for if the mother's health is in dire need or, if, you know, um, sure. if, if it's only emergency. And I, I don't think there's, and here's the honest truth, I don't think there's, a bunch of girls out there who are like, you know, you know, eight months pregnant, like, oh, I should get an abortion. Like, I don't think that's a, yeah, I don't think that way. Like, you no, know, I, I that, don't think so. Like that, that's just that's not a, a viable birth control form. That girls are, you know, uh, and women are just sitting there like, oh, well, I can always just get an abortion. I don't think that's how anyone thinks, but uh, or at least most people. But yeah, it's still it is troubling to know that you can, you know, I think it's after twenty one weeks, uh, a baby, you know, can. Uh, be out of the mom's womb and it, it needs help, it needs medical attention, but we yeah. can break it to full term after 21 weeks. So, I mean, that that, that really, to me, is hard to justify uh, any kind of late-term abortion. I mean, what, what, what do you feel about that? Well, this is a hairy subject. Uh, obviously, anytime you talk about this, I mean, we could have a whole podcast series on yeah. just abortion and legislation and things like that. Um, I tend to lean towards the pro-choice um, just because of the welfare state and things like that. Um, I don't want people, if they don't have the choice, to do things illegal or do things that are reckless. Yeah. Like the things you hear about people throwing them into a dumpster or whatever happened to FedEx recently. Uh, I don't know if you heard that story down in Georgia. She had a baby and just threw it away. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, and you know, that's just terrible. When you hear about that, obviously visions come to your come to mind and you're like, oh my gosh, um, I don't want, when you make things illegal and you mandate them at the state, and you mandate them at the um, federal level, I, I think I just had kind of a problem with that. I feel like it should be at the state level. It should allow people to make their own decisions um, down at that level, really. Because each area of the country is a different culture and everybody has different values in different parts and to make it across the board, is a little uh, difficult. Obviously, this Trump was referencing the Virginia yeah. Governor Ralph Northam talking about third trimester abortions, and I heard something recently about New York. Uh, 
real quick, we're going to pause here. Um, we're right at the 30-minute mark, but we are going to pick back up for the second segment uh, as, uh, as soon as we go after this break. All right, so we're back now. Uh, unfortunately, the, the platform that I record these podcasts on, we um, keep them going for 30 minutes at a time. So we were right at that 30-minute mark. Um, and uh, so we're going to kind of try to pick up where, we're come, uh, where we left off at. Andy, you were kind of talking about Virginia and New York. We are talking about late-term abortion. And, uh, I mean, it is a hairy situation because, you know, at the end of the day, you're talking about, well, the autonomy of a full-grown person or the life of an unborn person. And uh, I think that you were kind of meant, kind of uh, reckoning towards state rights on that matter and just letting the state, each state decide for itself. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Anytime you bring a federal uh, mandate on something, a law, into effect, then you're kind of forcing everyone into a certain area. And like I said, there's different cultures throughout the country. I've lived in different parts of the country, lived in the Midwest, the South, out West. There are different views, different leanings, different ways people do stuff. Uh, I guess I should clarify, late-term abortions, I, that's that's kind of a problem for me. I would I think regular abortion, you know, they're early term, um, definitely pro-choice, but a, a late term, like you said, I don't think anyone's making a decision if their health is at risk um, to say, oh, well, uh, I'm not going to do that and yeah. save my life because I'm here and I'm a contributing person. That's an extremely difficult decision for the mother to make. Yeah. I think that's really the hardest thing for people to think about is getting their shoes and say, oh, my gosh, if they had to make that decision. I think we go to the negative connotation that, it, ooh, late trimester, we start thinking, well, that's a terrible person, maybe a junkie, somebody who's on heroin or something. And I don't think that's exactly what we're talking about. It's hard to put it in context because I haven't really heard a whole lot about late term. Um, but really, I think it is for health and safety. Yes, yeah, I mean, the most. my whole thing is just trying to think logically, how many people do you really think are just sitting there for just, you know, nefarious reasons wanting to get a late-term abortion. I think that there's always, that yeah. only happens because there's a necessity behind it. So uh, the way that it's painted, though, is, you know, obviously in, in poor taste. It's, it's something that I don't think anyone, uh, you know, on either side of the aisle, if they can afford not to have a late-term abortion, that, that's just not the route most people are going to take regardless. So, yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> but it is... Uh, it is a very gray area, I think. So um, it's easier easy to spin it either way. Yeah. I think you know you could spin it one way or the other. And I've read a few different articles going either way. So it, it's a hard thing um, talk about. I, should he have brought that up during the State of the Union? Uh, I don't really think so. I think, uh, in I my think, opinion, I but. think it's just because of how fresh that topic is right now. So. It's, yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think that has anything to do with the real agenda, uh, no. what the president should be doing. So, well, that that is just a traditional Republican response. Uh, yeah, and I yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, uh, so we, we kind of we, you know, we talked about the things that uh, we did well. You know, we do have a, an economy that's growing. Uh, we do have low unemployment rate. We do have job growth. You even mentioned that uh, minority unemployment is at its lowest point. Um, well, I looked at some of the fact-checking, and that was true a few months ago. Sure. But under, his, now, under, yeah, his, under administration. his administration, for sure. So, and, you know, and you're not going to reference and say, oh, well, two, three months ago. Right. You're going to say, uh, right now in the moment, that's what I'm bringing to the table. And, you know, I, I thought it was kind of in poor taste of the Democrats that they, especially all those women in white, you know, how they were, none of them clapped for that. And uh, it's not to say that there isn't a lot more work that needs to be done, but... You know, people sure. are more employed now than they have been in the past, and that's not a bad thing. Like, I mean, that's just that's that's something where you got to give credit where it's due. And, and to be fair, though, a lot of these positive attributes of Trump's economy has also pulled over from Obama. Yeah, rode on the yeah, coattails. So we were already on the upward, right, up and up right. area. So that that's there's definitely some um, uh, uh, some of that attrib attribution there towards Obama's. Administration that uh, Trump uh, gladly doesn't give towards them. So I, you know, I feel like that has to come back to then the tax cut. Is I felt that that was kind of reckless. 
when we're going up and up and things are growing and growth is there and the economy is healthy, why are we cutting taxes? Well, to stimulate more growth, but the problem is, is that... But it was a stock buyback. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, so, that's what we saw. So, all right, so Bernie, I believe it was Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer came out saying that they want to have some kind of law eliminating or putting some kind of um, terms on buybacks. Yeah. Yes. And, and, in fact, buybacks were illegal up to, what, what was a. I don't know the stats, but I was reading in the 30s, I thought it was illegal yeah, after it was the illegal. stock market crash and we were recovering. Right. It was illegal to uh, do that. So It's almost like insider trading. Right. Yeah. It, it, I mean, how is so, it legal? So they came up with this idea of, you know, you have to show X amount of growth in your employment wages and things like that before you can then also reinvest in buybacks. And to be honest with you, I'm actually uh, not opposed to that. Like that is one thing. I, I'm not either. I mean, when you become publicly traded, it's exactly what it says. You have now put your company out in the public and said, "Do you trust me? Do you want to invest in me? Right. Do you want to help my company grow?" Right. Not, oh, do I want to buy all my stocks back and artificially inflate my stock right. to make people come and buy some of my stock? Right. That that's misleading. Well, it, and it helps the the company's bottom line for shareholders, but it doesn't actually help the economy as far as, you know, how many people are getting employed with decent wages. And so I absolutely think that I agree. there has to be some kind of uh, watchdog in, in how we allow corporations to, you know, essentially benefit off this corporate welfare, but without, yes. without also helping the people. And, and that's exactly it. You know, you know, people, Republicans and people on the right want to sit there and talk about how, uh, People on welfare, this and welfare, that. But yet, then they sit, turn a blind eye to corporate welfare, which, you know, is in the millions and millions and millions of dollars as opposed Trillions. to. Yeah, 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 right. As opposed to someone on food stamps. So uh, the level of offense is at such a higher stake in, in corporate welfare. And yet, you know, time after time, we turn blind eyes to that. So I, I'm all for keeping them honest and trying to reinvest in people in the workforce as opposed to the stock in the bottom line. Yeah, and we're seeing that. I mean, I wish he's not going to bring that up at the State of the Union, but GM's closing five plants, Yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, 14,000 employees, both blue and white collar, cut. Yeah. Um, all this, this tax cut didn't do anything. They said, okay, now we can buy back some of our stock for some of these bigger corporations, reorganize. Right. Okay, I can appreciate that, reorganize. But buy back our own stock to keep it at a reasonable level and to reorganize our company all our cars and move on. Meanwhile, 14,000 jobs have just decimated people's lives, right. especially in an area where you're talking about manufacturing and these old school ways of doing things. I thought it was, I, we haven't seen a whole lot. I know one person who got a bonus from the tax cut, thousand bucks working for American Airlines for right. after the big tax cut. I didn't see anything about them hiring more people. She says that they're overworked in their office. Right. They didn't hire anyone else. That's a big company. American Airlines. They're not hiring more people. And that speaks to a lot of the reports out there that are saying, you know, wages haven't gone up and, and employment really is no different than what it was naturally growing at, regardless because of the strong economy. So um, I, I just don't see how these tax cuts, they're not a bad thing, but when they don't benefit the people like they're supposed to, uh, I thought they could have been a little more conservative on the corporation side. You could have went down to 28 and still been able to do so. 35 to 21 is a significant yeah, change. That's yeah, um, huge. huge. And when I looked at my tax, I just did my taxes, my tax bracket. You know, I'm saving 1% here and 1% there. And at the end of the end of the year, I got less money back. And I looked at my check and I had about $1,000 less taken out of my check for the total year of federal taxes. I mean, it really broke even. Yeah, uh, I feel, and the problem is with the standard deduction now, I'm married and for mar for single people, that double, it's like 12,100 or something. And then for married people, it's twenty over 24,000. So when you could write off your interest on your mortgage, uh, you know, however, if you just got into a house, you didn't put a lot of money down. Some people are writing seven, eight, nine thousand $9,000, maybe yeah. more. It only took you three grand to get over the 
standard deduction, and you could be maybe a little more generous. I know we were the year before. We were able to donate more money, and this year it was just it was a little bit more difficult. Yeah. We were stuck between how much money can I put away and save versus how much can I donate. And then the stock market was a wreck last year. I mean, most people lost money with stock buybacks. Oh. And, you know, there was still growth, but there wasn't a whole lot of confidence. Well, you know, this kind of all speaks towards the Democratic um, you know, response to the State of the Union last night. Now, they were saying that there still needs to be focused on equality, um, you know, fight against racism, fight to actually help, you know, your, your blue-collar wage earners, your middle sure. and lower class. And essentially, they're, they're pretty much refuting most of the grand the claims that Trump is saying, you know, are so great right now. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, do, do we see some sort of bipartisanship over the next two years? Do we see some kind of moderate legislation coming through? Or is this just going to be uh, a shit show to the end? And, and I think Trump tried to make it seem like um, there's hope, but, uh, you know, uh, we know better. So. Until we literally get past this wall, yeah. literally get past the wall, nothing will get done. Yeah. And that's the sad story and, and narrative right now. He's dug in so deep, and I don't care how deep the Democrats are, because it's his wall. Yeah. He's dug in so deep that if he does roll over at this point, it, it's, it's done. Right. I mean, he they could work bipartisan, but his ego will be affected so bad that he may not come out. He might just become a crab, a hermit <laughs> within the office. And uh, the Republicans may just say, we got to abandon this. we got to start all over if we expect to go into 2020. And I think that's what I really don't like about the elections is that two years ahead of the next election, they're already raising money. They're already looking to that, and they're not getting anything done. So you have two years to get something done. And if you don't get reelected the next two years, you're just trying to get reelected. Yeah. And uh, that's something that kind of sucks um, out there. I, I personally think that unless the economy takes a downturn or, or we start a big war, I, I think Trump's probably going to get reelected unless the Democrats really bring somebody up there. I mean, they have like 20 people right now who have declared to run. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just a mess. The one, I know, and it, that they need to trim that down if they think they're going to get anywhere. Right. But I, I, I don't see too many situations where we don't have a Trump 2020 uh, re-election. I think that liberal America vastly underestimates um, conservatives in America, and uh, you know that's yeah. that's shown. And, and so there has to be a, a coming piece in some way, shape, or form. And yeah, it's I, not going to happen under this president. I do see some. Uh, it was great for him to recognize all the women in Congress, and it's it's pretty crazy. You can almost say because of the Trump president's presidency <laughs> that women have now moved into Congress because all those areas that were Republican, right, are now Democrat, and a lot of women got elected. And this is the most we've ever seen. This is an astronomical yeah. amount of women now in Congress. So you want to think and you want to believe if you're on the Democratic side or, or anti-Trump that there's going to be enough voter turnout. There's going to be enough people to say, all right, we need to move towards the other side. But it's just crazy how, how much division there is right now. You look at the numbers, the approval rating for the Republicans of Trump are like 74 percent. And then you look at the Democrat and the disapproval ratings are 76 percent. We're so far yeah. Divided, it's crazy, and I mean, I catch myself doing it. You know, we all kind of dehumanize the other side because we're like, "How can they even think that way? How does that even make any sense? How will this do this?" And it's hard to kind of step back and critically think about it, you know, and try to move it all out and say, "Well, what's really going on here? Is right. this what is this really about? And does it really matter?" And I think that's hard for people to separate that. Well, you know, it, it is. And that's kind of, now more than ever, we, we kind of have a, an atmosphere of tribalism and people become so entrenched in their echo chambers and drawing the sure. line in the sand and, you know, choosing a side. And so that's why that's really been the, the main motivating factor of the avocado toast. Why I started with my debate group on Facebook. 
And it's great, man. I, I, I'm you know, real happy to be here, and I'm glad to see yeah. uh, the, di the dimensions that we have on that group. Yeah, I, and I appreciate everyone who participates on there because it is. It's so easy to get stuck in your way of thinking and then compound that problem by, you know, putting yourself, whether, uh, you know, consciously or inadvertently, in an echo chamber. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, is that Trump hasn't been all bad. He hasn't been all good. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's some things that he's done which were worth clapping for, and there's some things that he's done which are, are really not. And so, uh, and the same can be said for Democrats. So, you know, just being mindful that <laughs> the more yeah. power we give government, the more, uh, you know, we have to care about these kinds of issues. Whereas if, if the government really didn't have that kind of influence of presidents and, and, and congressmen and congresswomen didn't, then we wouldn't have to care so much about whose side each other was on. And uh, I think that's kind of like the, you know, the bottom line when it comes to that. So, um, so I want to move into one other thing that, um, that Trump talked about uh, during the Soviet, and that was touting his presidential performance. Uh, okay. that, that quote, he said, uh, if I had not been elected president of the United States, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. Um, that's, that's heavy words right there to, to say that uh, and come out with that. I, we were putting sanctions on him for a while, but for him to take that kind of credit right out of the gate, I, what, is he, what is he aiming for that with? Well, I mean, all right. To, hit, to be fair to him, he brought Kim to the table, which no other president can say. Hey, I'll give so, you that all day. So, yeah. uh, now whether anything actually truly effective has come from that, they haven't assembled their nuclear program. So, uh, you know, my whole thing is that he has reached out. He's, it's funny how he does it because, you know, he started off bullying. And then talking about Rocket Boy or oh you know, yeah, there's other of these nicknames. He he, um, he he'll sit there and he'll bully you and 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 make fun and pick, and then he'll flip the script and then try to be your best friend and then woo you into his line of thinking. Yeah, and, and they're two faced for sure. It's well, I don't even think I don't know. Two faced is the right way for it. It's, yeah, it's, it's it a, might be a little too negative. It's a tactic. It's it's a it it's, it's an intentional tactic, and whether it's effective or not, you know, I mean, we're we're about to see a second Trump and Kim summit in Vietnam coming up at the end of February, so yeah, I don't care who's president if we can create any kind of peace uh, with with nations that we you know have almost gone to war with, I'm all for that. So um, I am too. I just. Don't know where he's going with that. Oh, he I comes mean, out and says, well, "This is what I've done, and we might be a nest." That was just purely egotistical. I think yeah. you know, come out and toot my own horn. Which the State of the Union, you can do. That's that. what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're bringing people in. Yeah, it's what kind of what it is. You bring people in, and you show certain people who have been affected by your new laws and regulations and reform. So I, I guess you know it's not a huge deal, but I, I'm interested in uh, what's going to happen at this meeting. And too, you know, I think uh, uh, the fact check was correct that it's been over 15 months since a missile launch from North Korea. Uh, that's pretty uh, awesome. And yeah. you know, the next step obviously is complete nuclear the uh, uh, So uh, who knows? Uh, it's <laughs> it's to me not a bad thing. So. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of, I, I hate to say it, but I'm, I'm on Trump's side when it comes to getting out of Syria as well. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who disagree with that, but in my mind, I don't understand why, you know, what we're doing there and, and why we're even involved because. Well, it's military presence. It's the it. same way we have a huge uh, Navy with, you know, well, we have 10 aircraft carriers and we're buying two more. Yeah. We're there to provide the scare. That's uh, quotable. Yeah, I mean, you're going on Doctor Seuss there. Yeah, no, but it really is. It's the intimidation. Because what if Putin was to go and invade and take over Syria or do something crazy like? I mean, we don't know. I, I don't know all the war games. Okay, I don't claim to be uh, knowing that. But I'll tell you who does. Trump. He says he knows more than intelligence. <laughs> He's come out and he said that a few times. And 
I don't know. The, the report I saw from the inside, I'm not sure if you saw that the other day, about people reporting his schedule and yeah, it's 60% yeah. executive time. Yeah. And that's really him just tweeting and watching Fox and Friends on DVR or live. I don't know what he's doing. Anyways, I, I just feel like really at the end of the day, he needs to kind of uh, get to work. Well, he says he is. He says he's done more. And yeah, he says a lot. He's, he's Really what he has done is he's cost taxpayers more than ever with his golf trips and outings to Mar-a-Lago and what have you. So, um, you know, one of the things that is up right now that uh, Democrats proposed was making Election Day a holiday, a national holiday. I saw that. And uh, I think that should absolutely be a thing. Um, More voter turnout. That's yeah. it. Like, I mean, why anyone would object to that or call that a Democrat or a Republican thing? It's That should just be an American thing. That should be the all. But, you know. Can we drink during that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think you can drink at the, uh, the poll. Yeah. Yeah. We're drinking right now. Maybe that's what they're worried about. They're something. probably worried about that. It becomes a holiday and then people get drunk and, and don't know how to use it. Yeah. I don't know. So, uh, yeah, so. You know, hopefully that's something that will go on to, to make voter turnout better, and then we'll see what happens, you know, in 2020. Um, um, but, you know, we, we've sat here tonight, so we, we, we had to stay in the union, and because of that, there's really a lot to talk about. There is, uh, yeah. We were, unfortunately, um, kind of to your point when you said earlier, there's some topics that we could single out for an entire podcast. And so I think we moved pretty well through this. We're kind of right at the 50-minute mark. Um, I think this is probably a good place to stop tonight. And... Uh, you have any final comments or anything you want to leave our audience here with? Um, I think really, um, I don't think the State of the Union is as good as everyone says it is. <laughs> so, or how he touts it. I think there's some dysfunction. And there's a lot of new people and new ideas in there. And it's really going to take a lot to bring both sides together and meld into a pot that can really uh, accomplish some good stuff. Well, But I'm excited yeah. and enthusiastic and optimistic. Um, after this State of the Union to say that uh, there is some hope, but we have to get past this wall. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see if we're staring down another government shutdown here in the oh, next God, please, couple no. weeks. So uh, for your sake and uh, your paychecks, I hope that's not the case. But uh, all right, guys. Well, this is uh, Stephen Hoffman and uh, my special guest tonight, Andy Cupy, and we're signing off with the uh, Avocado Toast. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys.